When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. God, I loved it. I send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Welcome back to Horror Queers. We are talking children's movies. We're talking stop motion animation. And we're talking animated zombies. I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking Paranorman, our first foray into family films as, well, you you already said that, obviously, but I wanted to reiterate it. Because it's a weird thing. (laughs) (laughs) It, It is a weird thing, but it's also apt for this podcast. It actually is a family film that's horror that has a queer element to it. So, mm-hmm. a very slight queer element. <laughs> yes, but it's there. It's totally there. And I, I think we'll, we'll go into it. But before we do, I was going to introduce our guest, but then I thought it might be more appropriate if you did that. Sure, yes. Okay, so we are joined <laughs> in a very special crossover episode. I have my co host from my other podcast, Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. I have known this woman for probably. What do you think? Nearly a decade and a half at this point? Yeah, Joe, we're closing in on 20 years, my friend. Holy oh my fuck. gosh. Okay. <laughs> yes. So I have known Brenna Clark Gray since the time that we went to university together, and she is now an esteemed faculty member. She teaches English. She has a PhD, so she's way smarter than me. But uh, yeah. But Brenna, you're not into horror movies. Is as, Have I been informed correctly? Oh, yeah, no, I, this is a genre that I loathe. So, hi. <laughs> hi, fans. <laughs> this is basically just to recruit people for our other podcast. <laughs> I'm a big old scaredy cat. Well, this is the perfect film for you, right? It is. It's a good fit for me. And I was going to say, Trace, like, this makes you and I co-host in-laws. I know. I know, right? <laughs> now, okay, so had you seen this movie before? No, I had not. I had okay. not even heard of it. And I like kids' movies, fine. I'm a YA content person this falls a little below but i love claymation like i love really textured animated styles so Mm. this i really enjoyed visually stylistically this film i'll be upfront that um claymation stop motion all that shit is not my cup of tea i was gonna say that is not gonna be your jam is it (laughs) no (laughs) it's that kind of uncanny thing that it just really creeps me out and like not in a good way where i'm like oh I, i like this Stop motion doesn't bother me visually as much as claymation does. Claymation really bothers me. But I quite enjoyed this because I did think that the the story lent itself to that kind of weird look. Mm, mm-hmm, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
But before we get into the movie itself, so, Brent, if you don't mind my asking, so what, yeah. I know, like, you know, it's, okay, well, what bothers you about horror? Like, what is it that, <laughs> that really turns you off? But, like, what is your relationship to horror? So I don't like being scared. I mean, like, just on a, on a, that's not a pleasurable feeling for me. Um, mm. So most horror I don't like. I also, like, as Joe knows from our other podcast, I have a pretty strong aversion to rape, which... Mm-hmm. I know is not in every horror film, but is a recurring theme in scary films and something that I try to stay away from. It's also an understandable aversion, so <laughs> no <laughs> <Yeah>. judgment. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. I feel like it's fine to be like, eh, either way. But like if you meet someone who's like, love a good rape scene, be like, mm, mm. Yeah. So that's part it's of it. I think I don't like stuff that involves animals getting harmed. I don't like stuff that involves children. So, like, the the amount of horror that I'm, like, willing to even attempt, it's pretty hemmed in by those factors. Every Halloween, I watch one horror film for my husband because he <laughs> really likes horror movies. And so I, like, throw him bone once a year and I'll, on Halloween, we'll watch a movie. What did y'all watch last Halloween? Do you remember? The Witches. Oh, that's a good pick. The Roald Dahl like the movie? the Roald Dahl adaptation. No, With no, Angelica wait. Houston? No, do I have the title wrong? It's that one that's like, oh, it takes place witch. kind of in like Salem-y. Is it oh, The Witch? The Witch, like, yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> Some The Witch. Some people call it The Witch. The Vivivitch. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That- Which I like because I like witch things. Like I'm into witches as like um, an upending of the patriarchy kind of construct. I enjoy uh-huh. a witch. So I liked that. We've watched, oh gosh, Scream, because I, you know, there's some send up there, which I can appreciate. Mm-hmm. So you can handle maybe a horror comedy more so than like a straight up horror film. Prefer a horror comedy or like a historical horror if I'm gonna go horror. Right. Yeah. Does the gore bother you? Gore? It's funny. I like. I just. I just don't enjoy gore, but I'm far more traumatized by like psychological right. stuff. Like the scary movie that stuck with me the longest. It sounds really stupid because I'm sure it's not even like considered good, but I think it's called The Strangers. Oh, oh, no, that is a <laughs> good a, one. It's a very good one. Oh, okay. <laughs> I like that one a lot. I watched that in grad school and like there's a line in it that I still remember, which is like, I don't understand why you chose us. And the guy was like, because you were home. I was like, yeah. oh, no, no, there has to be a reason. That's not a reason. <laughs> I was very upset. I can't handle the idea that anybody could just get murdered at any point. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't like that. It's so funny. I remember seeing The Strangers (laughs) because it it opened against the Sex and the City movie back in 2008. And it was like supposed to flop because it was was delayed by like a year. And then because it opened up against Sex and the City, it made quite a bit of money. But yeah, that movie is very terrifying. And if you don't already know, there is a sequel that came out last year. Oh, really? Did it have the same? Because who's the guy in? Who was the guy in The Strangers? Scott Speedman. That's yeah, why I yeah. saw it, because I love Felicity, so yes. that's why I saw that movie. I thought you were going, like, beginning to say, like, oh, I love the Underworld movies. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> no. If she can bring it back to, like, any kind of Canadian content, and particularly, like, Degrassi or Felicity, like, that's Brenna's happy place. It's okay. not my fault that everyone was in Degrassi. Like, you can't hold that no, against me. you're right. Now, <laughs> yeah, I will say, though, that it's interesting that you say, you know, okay, so rape isn't for you. Totally get yeah. that. But children and animals, which yep. coincidentally to bring it back, this movie has children and animals in peril. <laughs> it's true, but they're not real. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, <Whoa. laughs> I mean, spoiler. 
This movie legit has a dog that's cut in half walking around playing fetch. Oh, but that's like the most adorable He's a ghost. ghost dog. I know. Okay, but again, if you're describing <laughs> this movie, like there are some things where I was like, if I was just telling someone it's the plot true. of this movie, <laughs> they would not know that this was a kid's movie. You've got to be like, okay, so yeah, there's like a lot of decapitation happening. There's a lot of like just limbs lying around or mm-hmm. active on their own. But like, it's all got this veneer of chicken run above it. So it's like, it's fine. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so before we dive into it, I'll go through some, some minor stats really quick. So, Paranorman, which was released by Focus Features on August 17th, 2012. I didn't realize it was that old, by the way. I thought this was like a much newer film. And then it runs a brisk 93 minutes, but eight of those are credits. And it cost $60 million to make. Ooh, yeah. Yes. Is that just because stop motion is really expensive? Yeah, I think yes. they started... Wait, I might have the stat... It was in production for three years, with the animating stage of production lasting about two years and beginning in late 2009. So, yeah. yeah, That's a lot of salaries for a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, for a good product, at least. Yeah. I think this is actually a very... It's one of the the more entertaining and, I don't know, morally conscious (laughs) kids' movies that I've seen recently. Mm. But one that works equally as well for adults and for children, which, you know... I feel like most yeah. of the films that fall in that category right now are like Pixar films. Mm-hmm. Or Shrek films. Ugh. Okay, but the last Shrek film came out in like, actually it might have been the same year this came out. <laughs> I was going to say, probably not as long as we thought. <laughs> <laughs> um, only the first two Shreks are good. So, with that budget, man, it opened at number three behind The Expendables 2 and The Bourne Legacy with $14 million. It went on to gross $56 million domestically, uh, but it also grossed $51 million internationally. So it had a worldwide total of $107 million, but... That's not quite enough. The studio, which is Leica, who did the Missing Link movie that came out earlier this year... Ooh, that's the bad example. <laughs> no, I, I heard it was really good. I saw it with my toddler at toddler time, when the movie theater lets babies in. Um, was it good? It, yeah, honestly, it was enjoyable. Like, it wasn't, it just not stuck with me. And, like, there was not some larger, you know, important message or anything. But it was really fun. And it did the same thing of having, like, the two registers of comedy, right? So there was definitely, like, an adult layer mm-hmm. and a kid layer. Yeah. No, it was fine. I saw a lot of movies in toddler time. A lot of them were worse than Missing Link. There you go. There you <laughs> I think Leica has a good, it has a good reputation for delivering these kinds of films where they're a little socially conscious. They work well at both children and adult levels. So did they do Coraline? Yes. Yeah, they did. They definitely did Coraline. I was trying to remember if they did Kubo and the Two Strings, but I think that might be somebody else. Well, the writer of this did co-write Kubo and the Two Strings, so it's possible. Because that one's also, I would say, on par with this in terms of the entertainment factor for adults and children, where Mm -hmm. you're like, this is a savvy storyteller, but it's also, I think, therefore, a bit more of a hard sell because it's not just like park your child in front of it and walk away right well and i Coraline's one of those movies that a lot of horror fans have recommended that i watch i've just never gotten around to seeing it but um i've heard very good things about Coraline as well yeah i've never seen it either uh, me neither i have a bit of a i have a neil gaiman thing he's my arch nemesis it's fine he doesn't know oh, did he okay. did he write Coraline? <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shit. See, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the reception for Paranorman was very positive. You're looking at 88% on Rotten Tomatoes from critics and a 72% from audiences. And then Metacritic, you're looking at a 72 out of 100 from critics and an 8.4 out of 10 from audiences. So people liked this, although... Pretty good. Although... Yeah. 
<laughs> with the queer element that is introduced in the 11th hour of the film. Apparently a lot of parents walked out quite upset with this movie. <laughs> Which is ironic considering the message the movie sends. Jesus yeah. Christ. Well, <laughs> welcome back to ridiculousness that I name is any kind of phobia, be it, you know, homo or misogynistic or racial or and like the lines literally in the in the in the movie when the mom is like oh you know sometimes people say mean things but it's really just because they're afraid and the whole thing's about you know overcoming your fears and learning to not be afraid of like the things that you're you don't know Mm -hmm. and that's why they put that because well we'll get into it later i'm sorry (laughs) (laughs) it's funny because on um on hkhs pod obviously we interact with a lot of banned books Mm -hmm. that have been banned for ridiculous reasons or attempted to be banned for ridiculous reasons and i don't know why i'm always still surprised but like the idea that 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 sort of reveal at the end of the movie would upset a parent mm-hmm. to me oh my god get a life i just can't i just yeah. can't with this stuff yeah it, it's it's real upsetting and so okay so joe before we get to what your plot summary uh this movie mm-hmm. was directed by sam fell and chris butler they both co-directed the tale of despero Oh, I'm sorry. Sam Fell co-directed Flushed Away and The Tale of Despero, whereas Chris Butler did direct by himself The Missing Link. Chris Butler uh-huh. also wrote this film, and he co-wrote Kubo and the Two Strings, and he wrote Missing Link. So so they circle around each other. Yes, yeah. I mean, well, the crew itself does. I mean, like, oh, at least maybe it's like this like stop-motion claymation thing. Like, these people... Because the cinematographer worked on Chicken Run and Fantastic Mr. Fox and Isle of Dogs. The editor worked on Coraline and Kubo and the Two Strings. The weird one for me was the um, composer, John Bryan, but he did the scores for Magnolia, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Step Brothers, and This is 40. <laughs> oh, that is a hmm. varied career. It is. <laughs> I once got into a Twitter fight with Jed Apatow about This Is 40. <laughs> I like This Is 40. <laughs> I really like This Is 40. <laughs> it really made me really mad. Really, really mad. And uh, uh, yeah, no, it was, anyway, sorry. I, 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 I want to know that story <laughs> later. I actually really do. Or just send me the link to your Twitter fight. Yeah, I'm going to find it. I haven't that in a while. <laughs> but Joe. Yes. What is Paranorman about? All right. So this one actually managed to come in a little bit shorter than usual. So the film focuses on Norman. Oh, and all of the actors are obviously voice acting since there are no actual humans in the film. You're very discriminatory, though, because I think you said before that voice acting isn't real acting. (gasps) Joe! I think I meant it in a maybe different context than you, an asshole, are trying to make it out to be. But... <laughs> well, no, I, I, I think the, the context of that line, though, was whenever I was, I think we were listing credits of something, and he was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that person voiced that, because I usually forget that voice acting is like, you know. A real thing. Just count it. Yeah, I, I forget it's a real thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, we should probably note at this point that Brenna has herself been a voice actor, so sure I was. Have. Oh, shit! <laughs> <laughs> I sure have. It's how I paid my way through my undergrad. Oh my god, I'm, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. No, it's perfect. <laughs> totally hilarious. I'm going to eat shit for that later. Oh my god. <laughs> but, but that, 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 was, that, okay. that was the context. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, what's this about? Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> so the film focuses on Norman, who is voiced by Cody Smith McPhee, an odd little boy who has the ability to see ghosts. He's misunderstood by his father, Perry, Jeff Garland, doted on by his mother, Sandra, Leslie Mann. Ooh, it's our This Is 40 connection. Mm -hmm. And mocked by his sister, Courtney, Anna Kendrick, and schoolmates, particularly a rather stupid bully named Alvin, who is played by Christopher Mintz-Plass, a.k.a. McLovin. 
<laughs> in anticipation of the 300th anniversary of the witch's curse, the students at the school put on a play that retells the legend of Blythe Hollow about a witch, Jodel Furlin, who cursed the nine townspeople who condemned her to death to return as the living dead. During rehearsal, Norman has a premonition of the event, and he is also visited by the ghost of his recently deceased eccentric uncle, Pendergast, John Goodman. Now, I realize I may have gotten this wrong. Is it his uncle, or is it just the town eccentric? No, it is his uncle, and it's Prendergast. Because it's like the sisters. It? It's, it's from the mom's side of the family, right? Yeah. Like, he's, he's from the mom's side of the family, and the dad doesn't one around right in the opening scene mm-hmm. uh when norman can hear his parents fighting and yeah he mentions the mom's like crazy brother or norman's crazy uncle and it's prendergast okay that's what i thought but then it's kind of never brought up again and nobody seems to care about the character as soon as the book is retrieved from him so well, i was kind of like oh okay except for whenever prendergast first confronts norman and mm-hmm. then neil is kind of making fun of him and norman goes oh it's my uncle yeah <laughs> yeah yeah Okay. But oh, I, I did want to point out one thing, though. Yeah, apparently Aggie, which I didn't get this until after I was reading about it, because her last name is also Prendergast. So it's like Norman's family is like a descendant of her. Oh, interesting. Okay, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, so Aggie is the witch, mm-hmm. as we come to learn later. So uh, recently deceased eccentric uncle Prendergast, John Goodman, who warns Norman that he must read from the book at the witch's burial site before nightfall or the curse will come true. Despite efforts to follow instructions, Alvin prevents Norman from completing the task and the dead rise. The pair of boys narrowly escape with the help of Courtney, Norman's only school friend Neil, played by Tucker Albrizzi, and Neil's beefy older brother Mitch, Casey Affleck. The group eventually deduces that the location of the witch's burial site will be documented at Town Hall, but the rampaging zombies draw the attention of both Sheriff Hooper, Tempest Bledsoe, and a mob with an appetite for destruction. Norman eventually realizes that the zombies are not dangerous, and after Courtney quells the mob, the Babcock family is led by the judge, Bernard Hill, to the witch's grave. There, Norman tries to reason with her and discovers that she is really a little girl named Augie who acts out of pain and anger, and he encourages her to find peace. After a somewhat psychedelic battle, he talks her down and the danger passes. In the end, everything works out and Norman's family accepts him. Also, Mitch outs himself. Um, <laughs> also, um, uh, because honestly, that's how it comes out. No. Yeah. I kept waiting for this moment, and then it was like, Oh, I'll tell that to my boyfriend. He likes rom-coms. And you're like, wah, wah. But I think you're downplaying how revolutionary, though, that is for a family film. And I think that the reasoning, I mean, well, well, fuck, we'll just get into it. Um, We can just start off the conversation with that. So, yes, Paranorman is basically, we're covering it for this podcast because, yes, it is, I believe, the first and maybe only right now animated feature film to go to theaters, like, for kids that features a gay character. And, like, out gay not like oh yeah. that character is coded queer kind of deal right this isn't a fucking um dumbledore situation or beauty and the beast lafu yes. situation <laughs> oh my god what did they call that again some kind of like designated queer moment or 
exclusively. It was, I don't know, the weirdest phrasing of it. And I was like, you can't even just say that it's a man who has a crush on another man. Well, but it also the the moment I know it's like not important for this podcast, but that moment of being the beast is because like they're doing like the dancing where you know you trade partners and LeFou, the Josh is Josh Gad, he ends up dancing with a man and he gives like a look that's like, oh, like a flirty look, and that's it. It's like yeah. two seconds of screen time. Yeah. As compared to this two seconds of screen time where the <laughs> character freely admits it of his own volition. Well, it's interesting the way that happens, right? Because it's not a thing for Mitch. It's not like a tearful confession or something. He hasn't realized that Norman's sister has been, like, hitting on him because it doesn't even occur to him. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'll tell my boyfriend about that. Like, it's kind of lovely and it's nonchalant. Yes. You know? Would it have been nice for Mitch's boyfriend to be a part of the movie? I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> for sure. So, okay. So the quote that I have from the uh, from Chris Butler, he says... You know, having him there is connected to the film's message, where if we're saying to, in, to anyone that watches this movie, don't judge other people, then we've got to have the strength of our convictions. But I think they saved it for the end, though, so that they could bait and switch people who wouldn't go to see this movie if it was publicized that, oh yeah, this character is gay. Yeah, I fully right. agree. The fact that people were so mad about it is, I think, indicative Telling. of that. Yeah. yeah. There was no sort of telegraphing it in terms of the pitch, the marketing of the movie. Well, except, of course, if you look at the way that Mitch is, uh, you know, shaped, he's uh, got that fantastic physique. So I immediately was like, well, if there's going to be a gay character, it's either going to be the fat little kid <laughs> Joe. or it's going to be that beefy boy. <laughs> just because you're ripped does not mean all of us gays are ripped. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm just saying I've got a one inch waist and a 86 inch chest so um or you can be like fucking courtney with a one inch waist and an enormous ass like <laughs> the biggest butt i've seen on a fucking like skinny animated character it's insane the bodies in general are really interesting yeah like i i love the way bodies look in this film in general mm-hmm. in hindsight if you look at mitch you're kind of like oh it's funny that they kind of went with he's a bit dumb but he's like a big dumb guy who then is also the queer character what i kind of love though is that he has dumb lines but he also has very smart lines. i actually mm-hmm. love the line whenever um yeah. anna kendrick's like she says some line and, and she's like oh this is so predictable and he's like really because the zombie thing kind of threw me <laughs> <laughs> but i do love that the reveal recontextualizes his stupidity of mm-hmm. a character because again like most of the stupidity comes from him not reading anna kendrick's you know body language or yeah. just language in general yes He's very, like, laser-focused on certain things. Mm-hmm. But I went back and rewatched it today, and it was kind of interesting to see, like, even though I knew going into it the first time that he was the gay character, it still was interesting to watch the second time and, like, how it completely changes, like, when, like, it's confirmed, like, oh, he's gay, and, like, it makes him seem less stupid. I think it also does something really interesting in terms of the gender politics of Courtney's sort of damsel in distress act, right? Because mm-hmm. she's constantly sort of, like feigning helplessness around Mitch and he's constantly misreading what she's trying to do. Right. And so there's this there's this element where like Courtney's a lot smarter than she behaves around Mitch yes. because she's doing this thing that she perceives as flirtatious, but the film undercuts all of that with Mitch's reveal as well. Yeah. I agree. I, enjoy, I I understand I understand where you're coming from with like wanting more and I agree. I mean, again, I would I would love a kids movie with just an out gay character just being gay, but I like this. <laughs> and and I, I think it makes the, the the rage that people had after they walked out of it even more fascinating. Oh, just it's because so it's so, it's so nothing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I didn't know who the gay character or who the queer character was because on our spreadsheet, we we have this column that says like, what is the queer element in this film? And sometimes it just says nothing. Sometimes it says camp. Sometimes it says gay director. And in this one, it says there's a queer character in this children's film. So I spent the entire runtime being like, (laughs) I wonder which character it is and when is it going to happen? And to be honest, I watched this movie and I identified Norman as queer. And not because he's actually gay, but because he is presented as a queer character throughout well, this entire Well, separate narrative. from, removed from, right? Not able to fit into what his dad thinks of masculinity, too, which I think is a really important component of his character. Norman's dad even has a line in the beginning where he's like, I'm a very liberal person, but, I'm not, <laughs> I, but he says something very specific that I was like, yeah. oh, that's kind of like... I'm surprised they said this in this children's movie. I can't remember what the line was. But really, every character has their own queerness. This is a, a movie of misfits. Mm-hmm. Right. Did y'all have any MVPs in terms of the characters? Because for me, it was Courtney and Neil. Well, of course, it was Courtney for you. So Brenna Trace <laughs> loves, like, a diva outspoken bitch character. So. Oh, okay. Love Fair. it. Fair. But Anna Kendrick does really good with that role. Yeah, she really sells those lines. And I think they give Courtney so much personality and the way that she moves and like her hand motions and stuff that I was like, oh, yeah, she's the mean girl who's not actually mean at all. She's just kind of like, are we not done with this? I have other things that I need to do. Like the zombie uprising is really inconvenient timing for me. (laughs) (laughs) I actually really liked the dad. I don't like the dad's character. Don't get me wrong. But I thought that Jeff Garland did a really great job of that guy who thinks that he's liberal and progressive, but is actually super, super terrified of anything that steps out of line mm-hmm. from the norm. And that relationship that Norman's mother tries to explain to him is like, it's not that he doesn't love you. It's that he's scared for the way the world's going to interact with you, which I think yes. is something we see a lot in queer coming out narratives, right? Yes. Right. That defensiveness that ends up being performed as anger or misunderstanding, right? Yeah. And redirected. And redirected and and externalized in a way that becomes harmful, which is exactly what his father's doing to him here, right? Right. Um, and so I thought Garland did a good job with that. I'm this is me always on our show too, Trace, mm-hmm. and I'm sorry. I'm always like, is that the guy from oh, like no. Lord knows I can't just Google. But is Jeff Garland is the dude from um Curb Your Enthusiasm, right? He's the he's the friend, the best friend. I, I, so he was the only main like voice actor in this that I wasn't aware of, but I, I know he's in the Goldbergs, that show with Wendy McClendon Covey. Okay. He's also from Arrested Development. He was Mort Myers. Hmm. Okay. I don't know if that means anything. No, I'm just going to, I'm going to Google it. Yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm on the Wikipedia page. And actually he's the yeah. only name that, I, yeah, he is Curb Your Enthusiasm. He's yeah. Jeff, yeah. Jeff Green on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah, because he has this same vibe on that show, which is like, well, exactly what he says overtly here, which is like, I'm as progressive as anyone else, but don't give me that touchy-feely stuff, which is like, you're not as progressive as everyone else. You're actually right. quite inhibited and restricted in your perceptions of the world. And I like that trope in kids' movies because I think that's what a lot of kids live with, with their parents, like people who have a sense of themselves as progressive but have aged into a more conservative space. And so I really like that for kids who are, I mean, for kids like Norman, who are different in some way, who are trying to manage their difference. I mean, what's interesting is that Mitch passes in the community as like a quote unquote normal member of the community way more than Norman does, right? Yeah. Well, and, yeah. and I think it's interesting that, Joe, that you thought that Norman was going to be the queer character. I mean, it, again, he is queer in the literal sense yes. of, of this world. 
Because he even has that line where specifically he says, like, I didn't ask to be born this way. And that's like... Yeah. And the dad says none of us did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love I, that. I think, I think a lot of it's really on the nose. I mean, a lot of the messaging is really on the nose. But again, it's... It's a kid's movie. It's yeah, a, I'm not I'm not holding it to the same standards as like something I would like us or get out or something, I guess, like recent examples. But I did want to circle back around before we completely left Mitch, because I do think that Casey Affleck does a very good job voicing Mitch, but it's mm. ironic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shall we acknowledge the Casey Affleck in the room? Yes. I threatened to call him that super rapey guy for the whole episode. I mean, you can, you, you, can, you can still call him. I mean, he is a super rapey guy. And I, yeah, he is. I think it happened in 2015 is when all that came out. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And that's one of those things, right, where we often end up rereading these sort of these not all men, but like definitely this fucking guy situations where we've got this guy whose career we end up having to reread in the right. light of what we come to know later, right? Like, yep. I don't know about you, but I can't sit down and watch Bill Cosby as like a friendly family guy anymore. Oof. That's over, right? And so, and I think the same is true for Affleck, which is, it's a shame because there's a way that you could read, I think with a different actor whose career had gone in a different way, whose stories were not quite so just deeply and profoundly misogynistic, Mitch could be read in 2019 as way more subversive, mm-hmm, but yeah. it's hard to give Affleck that kind of credit. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, though, is like, you know, oh, the gays, the queers, we get this one thing in this movie, and then... And now it has to be Sully. <laughs> yeah, it's like tainted by Casey, because whenever I think of Casey Affleck, I always think of when he won the Oscar and Brie Larson had to present it, but she was the only <sighs> one, like, not clapping, so... Yeah, because fucking Brie Larson rocks. She, no. She's my fave. <laughs> She's a special fave. I'm making a heart sign with my hands at the microphone. Can everybody tell? I oh, yes. Also, Trace, <laughs> Brie Larson is Canadian. Are you sure? Because sometimes you say people are Canadian and they're not. Is she Canadian? I didn't even know that. I actually don't know. Oh, oh my god. I was like, no. Because he legit was like, Mary Elizabeth said Canadian. And I, I totally bought it until like a week later I was looking her up for something. And it was like, she's born in America. And I was like, Joe! <laughs> it's because everybody who was in Scott Pilgrim got honorary citizenship. I don't know if you know. <laughs> there was mostly Canadians in it too. So no, it, it was. was. You're totally Brie right. Larson is for sure American, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> Brenna, I was wondering though. So we touched briefly on this idea that why did it have to be Casey Affleck? And I know earlier we made the slight or I made a joke that oh, voice acting, not real acting, yeah. which I don't mean in that context. But I wonder, can you speak to the idea that what would it have meant to have somebody else in this role in terms of voice acting for the amount of lines that Mitch has and the kind of character that Casey Affleck gives him? Is that something mm-hmm. that could have been hypothetically swapped out? Like, obviously, Tracy mentioned that the allegations came out later. Yeah, way later. But in that situation, like, what is involved in the voice acting work? Because I feel like people don't actually know anything about it. I want to add on to that, too. Is is it always like, oh, they record the lines first and then they animate around it? Or do they animate first and then record the lines after? Because then there's no room for, like, improvisations or ad-libbing. Or maybe it just, like, depends on the movie. Depends on the movie and the budget of the production. Mm -hmm. Especially, and if it's intended to be dubbed overseas, then they won't bother animating it to the... They won't bother animating the facial expressions because it's not going to match internationally anyway, right? Right, right. 
Um, so there's a whole bunch of components to that. And I will say, like, before somebody's listening in who, like, knows way more than me about it, like, my high-flying voice acting career was very much like I was on For Better or For Worse and several other Canadian children's animated <laughs> programs. So, like... Trace, you don't even know what that is, do you? No, I don't. For Better or For Worse, it's like this long-standing newspaper newspaper cartoon that got an animated series in the early 2000s. I'm actually surprised. Like, I'm learning a lot about Canadian television. Like, like, I bet you are. Well, whenever... <laughs> Because, Joe, when you were talking about Slasher and how, like, that's a lot of people from Being Erica in it. <gasps> yes. That's one thing that I'm tempted to watch because no, I love Brenna, Being Erica not, no. so... Oh. Yeah. No. <laughs> You're not going to like it. No. But no, I but, like, I, I I didn't know what it was, and so I went to go to Wikipedia, and I was like, oh, but this sounds like a really good show. I kind of want to so watch good. this now. It's so good. It's so good. But, like, that's the thing. So, so y'all get... Y'all get all most of our American television over there, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But we don't get your Canadian television. Or maybe we do, and I just don't know. You actually did. I think it played on Pop. Oh, and see, I, I didn't know Pop was a thing until Schitt's Creek. Mm. Yeah. So. Which, okay. Canadian. by the way, is also Canadian. I, yeah. no, I, 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 I am aware of that. Thank you. But I, I'm sorry. So continue your, your story, Brenna. Oh, yeah. So I was just like, I mean... Huh. I have to confess that when I was watching it, I kept forgetting it was Casey Affleck because, like, he's not John Goodman, right? Like, you hear John Goodman's voice and you're like, that's John Goodman. I've been hearing that voice since I was four, right? right? Like, I know who that is. I don't have that same relationship to Casey Affleck's voice, so I kept forgetting it. And there's definitely an aspect, I think, if we want to jump into the dense theory, that a voice actor doesn't embody a role in the same way as a non-voice actor does, right? Like, I don't have right. to look at Casey Affleck's stupid face for the entire movie. <laughs> and so... I can have a much more pleasurable experience than I could if this had been a live-action Casey Affleck trying to play this role, which I don't think would have worked for all those reasons. But, you know, like, voice acting is super weird. It's a super rarefied space. You don't, I mean, typically, sometimes it's different, but you don't typically act with anyone. You're reading lines against someone reading them cold, usually. Right. I imagine that's You don't have anything to play off of. Yeah, there's nothing to play off of, and you have to bring everything you're bringing emotionally to the role. It's on you, because it's like, it's some director or just some temp in, like, a sweatsuit being like, right. here's the line that you're responding to, and you have to do it, like, full energy. So, I mean, there are perks in that, like, you can also be in a sweatsuit, and you don't have to, like, go through hair and makeup, and you can do, if you're good at it, if you're good at first takes, it can take almost no time at all, and the payday is really great. But it's definitely <laughs> a different kind of emotional experience, and I think it's really true to say that, like, that embodied aspect isn't there. Like, you don't think of... There's very few voice actors who you think of owning a role. Like, I can think of maybe Mark Hamill's Joker is someone who has, like, Mm -hmm. really owned a role. And and there are definitely examples of people who have played a role forever and ever and ever. But, like, you could be behind Nancy Cartwright in the grocery store and not know that it was Bart Simpson, right? Right, right. And so there's definitely a different relationship between the actor and the work than there is in traditional performance, I think. I'm actually intrigued by like you saying that you know it's typically just you in the room reading because I mean I, I am sure it depends on the movie because but when we were doing Seed of Chucky I, I was looking at behind the scenes stuff but they have Jennifer Tilly and Brad Dorif in the same like recording studio doing their lines for the dolls but yeah and I think it does depend on productions I know Pixar tries to get more like group stuff mm-hmm. together for really emotional scenes and I think it depends on the budget involved sure. right? right like if yeah. you've got more money to play with and you can bring everybody into the room at the same time that happens but like definitely in animated tv it's just it's just you 
in a room with yeah. a script. Yeah. Um, and sometimes nobody's even reading the lines back to you. Like sometimes you're, you're just, just delivering, <laughs> you're delivering a page of sides and you're just like, okay. <laughs> Which is hysterical because one time Brenna and I had an episode of HKHS where we were interviewing someone and Brenna's audio got completely messed up. So I had to make Brenna reread all of her lines independently. Oh my God. Yeah. Are you yeah. And me? she killed it, people. So if you ever want to listen to that, you can go back, check that episode out. Let us know if you can tell which interview it is that I wasn't really in the room for. <laughs> uh, I'm surprised you didn't do that on our Patreon episode for, oh god, um, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, because we lost 15 minutes of my audio during that recording, and Joe just had to, like, fudge it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what can I say, people? I am extraordinary at this. Yeah. I can podcast like nobody's business, he says, oh as my he god. sits We're very proud of with you. a glass of wine. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. Okay, so are y'all okay if I transition away then from voice acting? Or do y'all, yes. do y'all want to talk about more? Yeah. Okay. I just want to say that if you Google Untalkative Bunny cheerleader episode, you can see some of my work that's been preserved on the internet. Uh, I think uh, we can maybe link to that in the show notes, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I will make a You really don't it. need to. No, no, no. You we're, really don't need we're to. We're fucking going to. So... <laughs> Did it earn you a star on Canada's Walk of Fame? That's what I need to know. It didn't, but I'm pretty sure it paid for my textbooks third year. All right. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. I'm not trying to toot my own horn here, but I have been told by multiple people that I need to go into radio, haha, podcasting, or voice acting. And I, I never really, like, went in-depth into trying to do it. But, like, hey, if you're listening, anyone, and you want my voice mm. on your show, by all means. It's true. Trace has a face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that like I used to my 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 bread and butter back in the day in the late 90s and early 2000s was 30 second like radio spots mm -hmm. and a 30 second radio spot local radio pays paid back in the day I'm sure it's much more now because it's yeah. a union gig with scale it paid 300 bucks and it would take me like maybe 10 minutes it was oh, amazing awesome. yeah I just had to earn money in a bar, basically dealing with drunk assholes. Yeah, see, Joe and I had the same, like, we we met at a job we were both doing on campus, and then we both had side hustles, and mine was much more lucrative. Oh, I'm sure. sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Joe, you should have gone into voice acting. Or I should have gone into proper hustling. <laughs> or that, too. Or, I mean, you live in downtown Toronto, Toronto, Toronto so <laughs> I'm sure you have a corner right there. This is true. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Where were you transitioning to? No, no, no. no, no. Y'all are good. So what I, I was actually what I, what I really liked about this movie that I don't think Brenna might have picked up on when she was watching it is the love of the horror genre in this movie because there's a lot yeah. of homages to various horror films. I'm so glad you said that because I had that experience of watching it like I was missing out on a significant joke. <laughs> I mean, like, like I could tell they were referencing things, but I didn't know what they were referencing. And I was like having that experience, like when I watch my toddler in a room full of adults and all the adults are laughing and he just, he'll stop what he's doing. He'll be like, ha 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 That was me watching this movie sometimes, I swear. Right. Well, because, okay, so I, I, watching this, you know, I mean, I didn't find it scary because it's a family film. So I know that these, none of these characters are really in peril. But, Even I didn't find it scary, and I'm scared of most things. <laughs> but, I mean, you know, you have a three-year-old watching this movie. I'm sure they're going to get scared by the zombies, because they are... I mean, uh, when I was a kid, I was scared by Billy in Hocus Pocus, because he was a zombie, and he gets decapitated at one point, and it's Yeah, scary. I definitely didn't let the toddler watch it. It The zombie stuff would have been too much for him, for sure, for sure. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, mm. I was going to ask that at some point. No, I let him watch the rom-com YAs. I don't let him watch this. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, how, old is, how old is your toddler? He's two. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think this is, it's PG, so I think, what, four or five? I I, I don't have kids, so I don't know what the appropriate, like, gauge Yeah, is. I would say, honestly, honestly, by, by the time they're in kindergarten, they're hearing scarier stuff than this from their schoolmates. Okay. So, you know, it, totally safe by then. He doesn't like, it's the arms and things coming off. Yeah. A little kid doesn't have any context for that, right? And so it's a bit, it's a bit much. I think it's confusing and then scary by proxy, right? Yeah, it's it, you're right. It's it's confusing first, and it's scary because it's confusing. Well, even the part where Mitch is like, you know, he hits the zombie with the van, and then he picks it up, and its head like pops off, and yeah. the body starts moving. Which, well, Joe, we'll cover it next year because I'm adding it to the list. But there's another zombie movie for kids that we're gonna watch that deals with very similar things, but it came out 20 years ago. But it's again, it, it's pay, played comically for laughs, but even again describing what that scene is and like what these things do in this movie it's like it doesn't sound like a kids movie but mm-hmm. what i was going to say is though so like you know with horror the the homages now a lot of it was just standard like tropes or setups like the scene when the zombies are in the room and alvin and um norman are hiding and you know like norman's under the bed or whatever but then there's explicit ones so Brent, I don't know if you saw notice this um norman's cell phone ring is the halloween theme from john carpenter's halloween Oh, I totally didn't get that. And then, of course, immediately <laughs> after, uh, Neil's outside, like, trying to get his attention from the window, and he's wearing a hockey mask, which is a reference to Jason Voorhees. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because I was like, this is a reference to a scary man. <laughs> yeah. But I don't know which one. <laughs> you were like, oh, he's wearing a mask. That's probably something. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, you have, like, you know, obviously you're not a living dead references, but the one I actually loved the most was when Mr. Prendergrass is spying on Norman from behind the bush in the beginning of the movie. That is a direct reference to Halloween whenever Michael yeah. Myers is staring at Laurie from behind the bush. Yeah, you get a point of view shot from the threatening figure, which I guess in this movie, really, if you think about it, Prendergast kind of is in the early goings on, right? Like, he's stalking a child and threatening him, being like, you need to do this. And if you were a child, that would be incredibly scary. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and especially because you know he's the family member your family doesn't want you to spend time with, right? So there's all this kind of baggage around that, around his role in Norman's life anyway, even before he wants him to do something. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. For me, the thing that I like the most about this movie is there's this one sequence and it perfectly combines gallows humor with like still scariness, which is where Norman is trying to get the book out of Prendergast's hands. Yes! And oh, it's so there's morbid. all this humor about how he can't because the body has gone into rigor mortis and you're just... I honestly was laughing throughout that whole sequence. And then I was like, this is really disturbing. This is a child playing with a corpse and like basically bashing this corpse around, which is also kind of funny knowing that this is a zombie film. And in a way, that's actually what Norman is going to spend the rest of the movie trying to do is like battling around body parts of dead people. My favorite moment like that is when Mr. Pendergast dies and then... comes back to, like doesn't die and like his spirit like gets sucked back to, into his body and he's like ha ha not today and then he dies again <laughs> no and jokes about are all about out loud <laughs> they're all about timing and the timing for that like when he re-dies is perfect it's so yes. good the cherry on top of the corpse scene though is when he falls on top of norman and his tongue yes. falls out on norman yes, <laughs> yes. that's so icky <laughs> it's so gross but, I mean, also, you're talking about a movie where the, the villain is a child who was hanged oh, for yeah. witchcraft. Like, this movie has child murder in it. It's dark. Yep. And even the sequence where Norman is trying to get through the woods and is practically being impaled by probably, what, 200 different spikes. And you're like, this is a children's movie. <laughs> 
And I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's the, the tone. The movie handles the tone very well. But I mean, yeah, in the, the ending has a surprising like emotional resonance for me. Not just like like with like the acceptance and whatnot, but just even the scene when Aggie does finally like calm down. Which I know you don't play video games, Joe. Brenna, I'm assuming you don't since you have a two year old. I used to play video games. <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever play Batman: Arkham Asylum or um, Arkham City? No, but I read a lot of reviews of it. Is okay. that helpful? Uh, sure. So, so the, I mean, it's not important, but basically um, the Scarecrow segments of those games, um, he injects you with fear gas and you're put, you're brought into this psychedelic world that is very much like what Norman was going through in this movie. Oh, and interesting. I, and I think Arkham Asylum was 2009. So I was like, when, when this movie started being animated, so I really wondered if they took inspiration from something like that. Because a lot of other things have took in, taken inspiration from the Scarecrow, Scarecrow segments. It's just very similar. Yeah. I actually really liked how the animation style changed in that final dramatic confrontation. Mm, like the way that she looked compared to everybody else, it actually looked a bit more traditionally 2D, like hand-drawn animation. Mm-hmm. And I thought that that was a really interesting choice just to really signify how different and unique she was. So it was like she's literally visually being represented differently to make sure that we get, oh, she's a different kind of character. She has different kinds of powers. Mm-hmm. That's all I have to say about that. No, yeah, I, <laughs> the, uh, the actress who voices her, Nedja, you, you sounded unsure of, I don't know if it was the pronunciation or you just didn't know who she was. But I was trying to figure out if she's been in a show that I watched. So I was reading it and being like, is that that girl? I don't know. Well, so, and this is actually the IMDb trivia, but I knew this going into it. She plays the girl in Silent Hill who was accused of witchcraft and burned at the stake. <laughs> Oh, so she's got a type. (laughs) Yeah. Is she one of the voices in the Bioshock games? Yes, she's a little sister. Okay, that makes sense. I was wondering why I was extra creeped out by her. (laughs) I mean, she she does a lot of horror. She was in that Pascal Logier movie, The Tall Man with Jessica Biel, and then she was also in The Cabin in the Woods, which. (gasps) I've actually seen that. Okay, so she's the the zombie girl that's just walking around, like, with her arm cut off, like, you know, trying Uh, to kill people. Yeah, okay. Oh. Sidebar, I, I looked her up and she actually is also the actress that I thought she was. She's one of the characters on Dark Matter, which was a sci-fi show I really liked. Oh. See, I always got her confused with Davy Chase, who plays Samara in The Ring. Because uh. they, they also look very similar. <laughs> Youngish girls with dark hair and sort of pale complexion, right? And also in horror movies. <laughs> Yeah, she's she's good in this movie. I mean, she doesn't have a lot to do, but you have the emotional resonance. I mean, I, I almost teared up in the scene when she goes back to normal and her and Norman are standing at her burial site. Oh, I thought that was really lovely. I surprisingly touching. It is. Uh, interesting. Did it not work for you, Joe? It did, but it wasn't the scene that got me. My favorite sort of emotional climax scene was when Courtney actually steps out of the town hall and oh, yeah. protects Norman from the mob. That whole speech is great that all of them participate in when she's like, you are adults. <laughs> what are you doing? I love that scene. <laughs> I love any scene in any YA property, as Joe well knows, where a teenage girl tells off an adult. I love it. It's true. <laughs> no, yeah, it's, it's challenging the authority, you know, it's, mm-hmm. and especially if it's a woman t- telling off a man, you know, it's challenging mm-hmm. the patriarchy. Yeah. It's, it's great. And there's also, there's a lot of messaging. Like Even like when the cop is, um, she's talking about, the ozone layer she's like all these kids on their cell phones screwing up the ozone and then she litters (laughs) this movie is kind of deliciously anti-police in a lot of ways yeah it is (laughs) there's some great moments where it's like is this when we start killing the civilians like they're shooting the civilians and stuff i'm like oh my god this is amazing didn't she say no that's my job yes (laughs) 
Because <laughs> yes. that, that honestly was full-blown shocking. And I felt like the only way that they got away with it was because it was actually a black police officer as opposed to a white one. Oh, that's interesting. I literally oh, yeah. was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they just went there. Yeah, it's interesting. The police hold no authority in the community, really. No true authority. And they're absolutely horrendously bad at their jobs. And nobody seems to respect them. And people point out the, like, oh. the problems of mainstream policing. It was amazing. Yeah, I didn't even like... So Trayvon Martin was... He was killed six months before this movie came out. Jesus. So that made that joke probably especially um, prescient <laughs> when, at the time. Yeah. Wow. I'll admit, actually, this character, like the sheriff character, didn't work for me, if only because narratively there's very little payoff. Like, I appreciate the political commentary about the ineffectiveness of the character, but at mm -hmm. the same time, I kind of felt like if you're not going to throw up more dramatic roadblocks, per se, literal roadblocks, potentially, right. it seemed like a one character too many, like an unnecessary, particularly when we had the adult mobs that was being led by the drama teacher, who I thought was already a better... You know, she reminded me of Miss Carmody from The Mist. And Wait, but you know who thing. voices her, though, right? That's Alex Borstein. Yes, I did see that, which I thought was appropriate. And I would not have been able to tell that no. if I hadn't looked it up. Well, <laughs> she is a very, um, and listen, if you don't know, she's Lois on Family Guy. But she's also, um, oh, my God. Uh, oh, Miss Ungermeyer, the principal in the Lizzie McGuire movie. Oh, Love my God, Trace, McGuire I can't reference. believe you managed Love it. To... <laughs> Love it. Joe never brings up Hillary Duff properties for me. I'm really He grateful. reviews Younger. <laughs> okay, there's a couple of movies that seem to come up all the fucking time on this podcast, this horror podcast, and Lizzie McGuire is one of them. <laughs> no, that makes me really happy. I don't know how it keeps happening. <laughs> it's because, though, I karaoke what dreams are made of literally every time I go to karaoke, and my husband oh my hates God. that movie, too. And, like, I feel like every time we're like, hanging out with friends and we're, like, watching YouTube, because we do this thing where if we're hanging out, like, we, we all go through, like, YouTube music videos, and, like, we just, you know, take turns picking a video, and I will always put on the fucking Lizzie McGuire <laughs> musical climax. Oh, my God, Trace. I wish we could hang out in real life. <laughs> this is so good. Now, just to head off any commentary, I do not hate the Lizzie McGuire movie. <laughs> oh, no, I it's okay. I just don't always understand why it comes up. <laughs> I'm telling you, my husband hates it. He's like, because he hates it. He's like, Hillary Duff is a terrible actress. And I'm like, no, she's, <laughs> she, she's the voice of a generation. <laughs> if only she appeared in more horror movies. I feel like this is the space to confess that I, I, I don't own any CDs anymore, but I once owned both her CDs. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> sure did. Why when Joe not? and I knew each other, I was a big Metamorphosis fan. <laughs> I think I remember that. That is great. Yeah. I think you made fun of me a lot for it then too. <laughs> checks out <laughs> uh, well so yes that's alex borstein i mean she's done other stuff too like she's miss swan and matt tv she's did great work with niecy nash on getting on on hbo um but she's a really uh, gifted voice actor generally though like joe's right yeah. you don't always you don't pick her out it's not like you don't hear her voice and like oh i know exactly that's alex borstein you'll See? be like there's something about that that i recognize and right. then you're like oh yeah yeah but she's very gifted in and she really owns her characters Oh, but what I did want to say about the cop, though, is that, again, the, another reference, but to something you might know, Brenna, when she says, if it wasn't for those meddling kids. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Scooby-Doo. Scooby-Doo. <laughs> Which is so perfect, right? 
it's like an ironic twist on the line because she is not the villain and yet, yeah she's the cop <laughs> and yet of course in this movie the humans are the true villains right like adults mm-hmm. are the villains and particularly human adults are the villains i love any adults are the villains theme and i also really love when kids content makes references like that to other kids content but clearly for the benefit of the parent not the kid like no kid in 2012 is like oh yeah scooby-doo right <laughs> so it's yeah. great Maybe. I'm, yeah, it prob- you're probably right. Millennial parents are super nostalgic and we buy stuff just because yeah. we liked it. <laughs> this is 100% true. You're, yeah, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Okay, so well, actually, even on to, so the villain of the, of the movie. So were y'all surprised when the zombies were revealed to be benevolent? I wasn't because that's a pretty big kid trope. Okay. Right? Like that the thing that you are scared of is actually good and the thing that you should be scared of is your parents. That's like that's a pretty big kid media trope. And as as a parent, how does that make you feel? <laughs> oh no, definitely. I hope my little boy fights the man like every day. So it's good. It's good. But also, her kid is going to be different. <laughs> She's going to be a different kind of mom. She's a fun mom. I'm not that kind of mom. I'm a fun mom. Yeah, I'm not a regular mom. I'm a cool mom. I'm a cool mom. The best thing on the internet is on mom forums where moms cite that like unironically. Oh, oh my <laughs> god. Great. Oh my god. Mom Internet is my horror movie of choice. Alright, so are you a part of Mom Twitter then? I mean, I watch it from the sidelines, but I'm not the kind of mom that Mom Twitter is particularly interested in. <laughs> yeah, because Brenna will fight you. Of course. My husband, uh, when he wants to get at me, he's like, oh, someone's being a bit of a wine mom. Oh my god. Oh, burn. I love the wine yeah. mom. I love wine and I love being a mom, but you put them together and it's just it's just a bad Facebook group. Yep. <laughs> All you need then is a book club. <laughs> Or the movie book club. Yeah, no. Mm, no. <laughs> I paid I money to it. see that. Of course you did. It's a bunch of old ladies being nasty. Yeah. Is that your jam? Oh, yeah. Literally any woman, but especially if it's... Okay, my thing is if it's a woman, an actress, who is mostly known for not being... like For doing like wholesome roles. Sure, I get that. He likes good girls gone bad. Yes. Like when Amanda Seyfried did her generous body, I was like, oh my God, Amanda Seyfried's going to say fuck a lot. Because again, she's Mean Girls and Mamma Mia up in that point. And so, yeah, I'm all into... And if it's older ladies, like, I love it. (laughs) Grace and Frankie is my jam because I get to see Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin talk about vibrators all the time. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So Paranorman. (laughs) I know, I know, I know. Right. So... I don't know if there's any other theme. Oh, oh, I actually had something. So, okay. So, back to Aggie. So, you know, there's the line when Norman and her, like, you know, debating and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And she makes a comment that's like, uh, what about the people who hurt you? Don't you ever want to make them suffer? And, you know, Norman's like, well, you're a very unhappy person and you just want everyone to suffer the same way you do. Mm. So, and this may be totally off the wall, but I was like, this movie is making a commentary on troll culture. Oh, totally. I think so. I thought the same thing. I mean, because, you know, I mean, if you're a troll and you're listening to us, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> but you make you everyone's life are. worse and go away. <laughs> go to therapy. I've Twitter's been, not your therapy. I've been a lot of trolls for the past five days because of my review of the Scream TV show that just came out. I've been... I read that review. I mean, it was more an editorial slash opinion piece than it was a review, but I wanted to slap a rating onto it. <laughs> so I called mm-hmm. it a review. But I have gotten a lot of verbal abuse, both in the comments and Twitter from that piece. And uh, so when I, when I watched this, I, I was like, uh, you're right. It's, it's not worth getting out to these people because they're all, at the end of the day, just very miserable people who mm-hmm. want to make others just as miserable. Yeah. I have some recommended adjacent content to this, which is the This American Life episode where Lindy West confronts the troll who set up the account that berates her under the name of her dead father. 
Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah. She has a conversation with him on This American Life. If you Google like Lindy West, This American Life, it comes up and it's phenomenal. But basically it's this same thesis, which is that these are very deeply wounded people who are lashing out at the world and it doesn't make what they do okay. It doesn't make what they do not harassment, but it does help you as the person who's on the receiving end of it to contextualize some of what's happening to you. And really, I mean... That message is reinforced a lot. It's in this movie. It's th- that's mm-hmm. the witch, but that's also Norman's Alvin. father and his relationship. Yeah, it's Alvin. Oh, yeah, we haven't talked about Alvin at all. Well, because I was I was surprised that you didn't think that Alvin was going to be the gay character because, as we've discussed a lot on this podcast, is you know typically your bullies tend to be your homo repressed characters. Can I just say that Alvin's lock picking scene was like one of my highlights <laughs> of the movie? <laughs> that was yeah, that was good. I like that a lot. Freaking good. <laughs> The thing that I liked about Alvin is that he's obviously set up as a bully, but his bullying really has nothing to do with Norman at all. And at the end of the day, it seems it seems more that the film has disdain for his kind of lack of intellect. And as soon as he prevents Norman from reading the book, like from that moment on, there's no more bullying and Alvin just becomes the kind of stock idiot character for lack of a better term. He gets rendered ridiculous at the end of the movie, right? Because he wants credit for Norman's success. And he's like, oh yeah, we're buds all the time. And even the two girls he's saying that to basically roll their eyes at him. Like nobody falls for it. And I think that's important. He's also kind of rapey, just like Mr. Casey Affleck, because (laughs) he grabs Courtney's butt whenever they're all holding hands and like, you know, taking a stand. Yeah, he's super, like, yes, he's a wounded person. I do think the movie picks up for me a lot, like, once they all get together in the van, like, I mean, I I was, I mean, I like this movie a lot, but, like, once they kind of team up, that's when I was like, okay, cool, like, I'm, because I'm a big fan of, you know, people that from different social circles. Mm Mm-hmm being forced together or having to work together or former enemies like having to work together like i mean i am a sucker for that shit yeah i love that and i love the component of the siblings who didn't get along figuring out what each other's value is like she realizes courtney realizes that norman is been telling the truth this whole time that he does see dead people and she doesn't understand it but she'll support him and norman sees that his sister can be a really powerful ally when she wants to be and that she is capable of defending him against the town like to me that was a really special moment yeah it's interesting because I do feel like the film takes a little while to get going. Like it, it I would agree seems that, yeah. to spend a little too much time for my liking just on this general premise that he can actually see things. And part of me was like, yeah, no movie. Like we're already there with you. Yeah, we believe you. Oh, yeah. I disagree. I, I actually really enjoy the time we get to spend with Norman before like Prendergast really like comes into the fold. Like I love the scene when he's walking down the street talking to all the invisible people. And I especially love the moment <laughs> when he's talking to the flattened raccoon corpse. <laughs> oh, I think I come somewhere in the middle. I felt like that scene went on too long. Like it was more of it than I needed. But for me, the scenes that were really quite lovely were when he's with his grandma grandma. and the conversations he had with his grandma. Elaine Stritch. Yeah. The last role Elaine Stritch had before she died in 2014. Just so sad. She was so great. Yeah, the grandma is fantastic. I love, I just love her reaction to Norman's father, who's her son. Yeah. And I love their making up, sort of, at the end of the film. I just, I really thought she was a great emotional piece. Mm-hmm. The last shot of all of them watching TV together mm-hmm. is such a perfect, again, like, that also kind of got me, like, not teary-eyed, but very emotional. Because I was like, oh, yeah. they're back to their family again. It's so good. Yeah, and I loved it because it wasn't like... 
it doesn't hit you over the head. Yeah, it's not too much. Like, it's the exact right amount for Norman's father to progress, that he will acknowledge that Norman can see a ghost mm -hmm. and that he will spend time with him in that space. He's not like, okay, now let's all have a family seance because I'm in, right? Like, it's yeah. the exact right amount for him to come on board. Yeah. yeah, and he still doesn't get the horror movie thing that no. Norman is so interested in. But he's willing to try yeah. at the end, which is, I mean, gosh, for most kids, what they can hope for <laughs> from their parents, a willingness to try. I guess I'm backtracking a little bit, but I do love, so I, we, we didn't really mention the way the movie opened, which I, I, I'm a sucker for, you know, when a movie, a studio's logo is like, you know, tweaked to the design mm. of the film. And this one's very much like an old 50s, you know, horror it was movie. Cute. Mm -hmm. But the first like shot of the movie is like this brain that gets stepped on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> by a high heel that then gets tracked around the room. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then she does get eaten and like the first thing Norman says because uh, the grandma's like what's happening and then Norman's like oh he's eating her head. I'm like <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, I wasn't sure if it was just me like misreading it or like reading too much into it, but did you find that the dad spoke in a lot of kind of double entendres or like innuendo laden comments? I don't no. Like not that I picked up. Yeah, I mean, okay. may, may, I mean, again, nothing I can remember that I put in my notes, but I, might, I wasn't looking for it, admittedly. Okay. It was just all very, if you wanted to read into it, it could have been that he was talking about Norman being queer, but it also was like, it always seemed to have like a weird kind of sexual connotation to it, where I was just like, very early on, they're not only establishing the ground rules of what Norman can and can't do, what his relationship is like with his father, but then also this kind of coded double speak that adults have when they're talking to or about children. I thought it was clever, but then I was like, eh, maybe it's too much. Maybe I'm well, overthinking it. But I think that's something that, that kids' movies that try to, because in my opinion, the best kids movies are the ones that have things for kids mm -hmm. and adults because you know the worst ones are like I mean I'm sure you probably know Brenna the worst kids movies are the ones that are like strictly for kids yes how is the Angry Bird franchise <laughs> we have not brought such filth into our home no wait I, I feel like I feel like there's probably a lot of inappropriate double entendres in the Angry Birds movie given like the cast of that Maybe. I literally have no idea, and I will never know. It's not a question I will ever be able to answer. <laughs> it was literally the first one I could think of. So, and the, the, Well, I, I guess I'm going wrong here, because whenever I think of double entendres, because when I learned what a double entendre was, it was when the cat in the hat came out, because literally oh. the rating, the PG rating reason was like for double entendres. And I was like, what the fuck is a double entendre? And it's because he has that the garden hoe, and it's covered in yeah. dirt, and he calls it a dirty hoe. Yeah. That, that's your adult humor in your kids' movie, folks. <laughs> I don't know that that movie is for anyone, never mind no, it's, kids or adults. It's an atrocious piece of garbage. Don't ever see it. I saw it in theaters and it was bad. Oh, Trace. You should respect yourself more. I'm not old like you guys, so it was, um, a, th oh. it was a Thanksgiving movie. Yes, Brenna, you'll have to forgive Trace for that. He thinks that anything over 30 is old. So. I am 30. Oh. I am 30. How yes, actually he had, dare he you? had a breakdown <laughs> earlier when he turned 30. <laughs> I, I actually had a really hard time turning 30 this year. I did not want to turn Oh my 30. god. You know what? Honestly, being in your 30s is like the friggin' best. The and best. the other side yeah. of 35 is so good. Yeah. It's so good. Uh... I've had a freak out at 29 because I was not a tenured professor yet and I decided that I had failed at my life. <laughs> But it turns out that none of that is true. And honestly, like turning 36, because I'm that old, Trace, was a very liberating experience. 
I don't know if you could tell, but she's I just practically gave... the grandma character from Paranorman. Oh my! <laughs> all, it's all haggard. Uh, no, I just gave the face that that fake actress gave in the beginning of this movie when she saw the zombie. <laughs> right. Oh, and like oh, there's that joke where they 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 put the boom mic in her face, and she's like, no. she just pushes it away. <laughs> Well, apparently they uh, they found that scene very difficult, to, according to the IMDb Tribune. Mm-hmm. They found it difficult to make a bad movie because they had to do, like, unfortunate angles and, like, bad acting. And they were like, this is actually way harder to animate and to film than a regular, well-shot, well-acted, well-animated film. Mm. I cannot imagine spending three years animating something like I mean, because even like going back to like Nightmare Before Christmas or like which was like, you know, really kind of like the early goings of like that kind of animation style and how much time it takes and how many photographs. Uh. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, these are actual physically constructed characters that they then moved and took a picture, moved, took a picture, and then they animate it, right? Like that's what stop motion mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. So you don't even have the luxury. God, I'm so oblivious, but (laughs) I think of something like a Pixar film where you have to create your characters and you have to like animate them and think about how they're going to move. Whereas here you're looking at these characters and they've got their thick eyebrows and their big hips. And one of the things I love the most about this movie is how all of the characters actually look real the way that their faces are in terms of they've got bags Mm -hmm. under their eyes they've got hairs out of place and that kind of stuff that attention to detail and then spend three years putting that all together when i saw how long this film took to make i was thinking about i taught gender studies back in the winter term and a group of my students were going to they had to do a group creative project at the end of term and one group submitted this proposal for this amazing sounding stop motion film about overthrowing the patriarchy <laughs> and i was like you guys this sounds great you're but never do gonna you know how it. long stop motion takes and it was like two weeks after they submitted the proposal they were like uh we're just gonna do this as a skit in class and i was like yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you are <laughs> you absolutely are <laughs> well, so this is the first movie to use 3d printers for the animation so they they use 3d printers to generate all the different faces needed for the characters um, except the zombies which had mechanical faces with silicone skins yeah. Oh, that makes sense, actually, you know, when I think about the expressions and stuff. Yeah, and but, but to generate the 3D effects, the camera was mounted on a special rig that would take one shot, and then they would slide to a slightly different viewpoint and take another shot. Like, I just, again, the patience. Shoot me. Yeah. Oh like, my God. can you imagine? No. Well, and these things, like, they're not big. They're going to be probably, like, the height of your hand. Like, yeah. Like, just... Ugh, no. <laughs> well, that's why I think this, I mean, like I said, the cinematographer had worked on Chicken Run, Fantastic Mr. Fox, I Love Dogs. I imagine it's a, it's a very different eye you must have to do cinematography on, on like miniature scales like this. And I think one of the things about stop motion is that it always feels really special when you do encounter it because, yeah, feature length stop motion is an incredibly labor intensive product. Mm-hmm. And I liked it for this. Like, I really felt like, I mean, we talked briefly about, I loved the way the bodies were constructed. The mom's body, especially, there's a scene where like, Norman is just at basically gut height on his two parents. Yes, and yes. I adore their bodies. Like, mm-hmm. there's something so... I mean, yes, they're they're ridiculously heightened. Like, the way all the women have these waists and then these, like, giant hips and stuff. The cop, the cop especially has huge hips. Yes, but there's also <laughs> something really kind of... There's something weirdly authentic about their bodies as yes. well. Because yeah. I think a lot of care was taken to represent... Like, each person has a very different physique, a very different body type there's nothing sort of cookie cutter about the people and i thought that was a really neat very subtle underlining of the larger message of the film right Mm -hmm. which is that like 
everybody's just a little bit different. Everybody's a little bit different. And the only way you can understand people is to like form relationships with them, right? And to like try, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like Norman's dad doesn't want to try at the beginning of the movie. And then he finds a way to try. There's a lot of trying in this film. I like a film with a lot of trying. Yeah, there is. Well, and trying, but being true and honest with yourself, which is... Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like kid movie of all kids movies. <laughs> totally. But yeah. I love... I feel like we've danced around the idea of the adults in town being the villains. Like, we've mm-hmm. got sort of two different generations, right? We've got... I was going to say generation after generation after generation has just perpetuated this, mm-hmm. right? Like, adults have been the villains in this town since the pilgrims. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 300 years. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But I do love the fact that they just immediately descend into mob mentality. Like, I love the fact that this film is just playing with all kinds of inversions of expectations, despite the fact that they're obviously knowing enough to play on our conventions of horror films and what we think is going to happen. But that scene mm-hmm. with the mob outside of the town hall for me was like, it was kind of the emotional and traditional climax of the film because... Mm-hmm. As much as I I liked the messaging and the look of Aggie and Norman's confrontation with her, I think that was a lot more cathartic. Whereas in this case, I was like, it's such a a heightened dramatization of a mob mentality. These adults who should know better, who are Mm -hmm. just picking up the everyday utensils of their life and using it to like attack children. Mm -hmm. Their tools of domesticity. Yeah, like it's both obvious in the way that you're like, oh, okay, I know what I know what you're doing, but at the same time, I just think it works so well. No, it totally does. It's like I said earlier, it, it's very on the nose. A lot of the messaging is, but <clears throat> this movie has such a pure heart, which sounds cheesy as fuck to say, but it just it's true though. It gave me the warm fuzzies. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's just it's a sweet, sweet, sweet movie. It's gentle it AF. This film, gentle AF. <laughs> It's a stop-motion animation film that took three years to make, and it's about fucking horror films. Like, this movie yeah. is a love letter to a genre that I can't imagine a company spending $60 million willingly on such a quote-unquote niche audience. Yeah. What a fucking mm. risk that they took to make this movie. And then to make a movie that's got a queer character, that's got different types of bodies adequately represented, mm-hmm. that's got all of these characters learning these life lessons like it's a big swing at the end of the day yeah and i think it's really easy for people to just dismiss it as a teen or sorry as a family film well and honestly that is what i had done had we not covered it for this podcast i probably and i had seen people you know like a couple people like mention it around the time it came out and say oh like it's really good blah blah blah. and i remember reading about the gay character but that was really it for me i I was not going to go seek this out so i'm really glad that we actually Brenna, thank you for not really wanting to watch horror movies (laughs) (laughs) on this horror podcast. (laughs) Joe never thanks me for that. So thank you, Trace. I appreciate it. Uh, You know what? Just for that, I'm scheduling something really horrific for October. You already have. You're making me watch after in August because you're a monster. After? I don't even know what that is. Oh. Yes. Okay. So this this episode is actually dropping about a week and a half before our book two, aka season two of our podcast, Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. Go and check it out. <laughs> 
So originally we were going to do an episode that was like classical literature and then like a really contemporary pop film that was going to be super fun. And we're still doing that, but we've pushed it back. And instead we're going to do this terrible combo. They're both called After, but it's a book series written by a soccer mom from the South who wrote the book on her phone at her daughter's soccer practice. As One Direction fan fiction. Oh my God. It started as Harry Styles fan fiction, and it's about a woman who goes off to college and has her sexual awakening at the hands of a much more experienced male partner. Oh. It's apparently fucking atrocious. It's my least favorite trope in all of YA, which is once you lose your virginity, you're changed forever. Yeah. Which is my least favorite, and I think one of the most dangerous tropes that YA sells to young women. I mean, it it goes to perpetuate the thing of like, okay, you want abstinence, or like, again, or like that your first time having sex is going to be this life-changing thing, which, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry to say. It's not. It's not. It never is. No. And it reinforces all those horrible, like, evangelical, like, chewed gum metaphors. And it's just gross, and it makes me mad, and Joe's making me read it, and I hate One Direction, and I hate Wattpad (laughs) stories, and I hate... Oh, the Pussy Posse? Oh my god, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna die. I'm just gonna die. No, Wattpad is a platform where people, like amateur writers, can upload their work, and it's getting in, it's getting big into the movie industry. Oh, that shouldn't exist. We've done one of these before, and it was atrocious. Well, just so you know, I told you that when I'm on your podcast, we're doing a Lois Duncan novel, so we're either gonna, (gasps) but we're either gonna do I Know You Did Last Summer, or Killing Mr. Griffin. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, Brennan, you would actually want the latter because the former would scare you. Well, actually, if you made a I don't think screen, so. you might be able to do it. I don't I think, think so. I think I've seen I Know What You Did Last Summer. But that would actually be a really good conversation, though, because the book is very much a YA novel, and the, and the movie yeah. does turn it into a slasher film, which the book is not. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And Lois Duncan fucking hates that movie, Yeah, too, she hates so. it. <laughs> but but it's, it's from, it was written by Kevin Williamson, the writer of Scream, before he, he wrote Scream, and it only mm-hmm. got made after Scream came out and was a huge success. Yeah. Wait, who's Kevin Williamson? Why do I know that? Dawson's name? Creek. Oh, Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek. Oh, okay. See, so, yeah. you should be excited. It's got Jennifer Love really? huge tits. And Sarah Michelle Don't Gellar and Freddie Prince Jr. and Ryan Phillippe. Anyway, okay, Wait. I'm sorry. We've gotten way off track. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. In, any lasting thoughts on Paranorman before we... Uh, Joe, do you have a game? Uh, I do have a game, yeah. Okay, cool. So any lasting thoughts that you want to bring up? Any like little tidbits? From the movie? Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to highlight the fact that it's a very small moment, but I did get a good cackle out of it, is that when you see the nine zombies burst out of their graves, one of the zombies comes out butt first. <laughs> oh, that's funny. It was good. It was good. Because <laughs> I was just like, yeah, you always see a dumb hand or like a face pop out. And I was like, yeah, the zombies just like butt out. I enjoy the gag too when they um, open the door and the zombie like with the big teeth are there and then they slam the door and its teeth get stuck in the door. So then when they open it again, it's hanging off the door (laughs) off of its teeth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the design, I like the look that each of the nine zombies looked a little bit different and they all had a kind of distinct personality. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was quite clever. And I liked how, how the judge looked exactly like what you might expect a judge to look like. It was very Sleepy Hollow to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a good way. Which, the town is called Blythe Hollow, which is a reference to Sleepy yeah. Hollow, and something else. Wait, not not, not Blythe. Yeah, it is Blythe. Blythe is, yeah. um... I was going to say, there's a play called Blythe Spirit. Maybe that's what it is, because, yeah, it was, mm-hmm. it was a reference to two things, so that makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. Okay. So our game, it was tempting to be like, what might a potential Paranorman sequel look like? But then I decided we do that too often. So I would like you two to think of another story. It can already have been done as a traditional live action film, or it can be something that hasn't been done before. So Brenna, if you want to think adaptation, but Mm -hmm. I would like the two of you to think about what would benefit from a stop motion treatment. Uh, Nothing. It's gross. (laughs) (laughs) i'm i'm sorry i i I, i've never been in that subcult because i feel like there was always a certain type of i'm generalizing here but like in high school there was always a certain type of person who gravitated towards you know corpse bride never for christmas any tim burton kind of stuff it's funny because i actually hate all of those but i really like stop motion but i'm like a wallace and gromit kind of stop motion person yeah. Trace, have you ever seen, like, Wallace and Gromit or Chicken Run? I saw Chicken Run in theaters, and I've seen episodes of Wallace and Gromit. I have not seen the movie. Oh, the movie is so... Oh, we could do the movie. It's a horror movie. It's The, the were- Were-Rabbit. The Were-Rabbit, the were-rabbit is so funny. Okay, oh bring God. me back if you do that. It's, y'all, no, I, I, Wallace and Gromit, like, I, as, even as a kid, I hated it. I hated the way their mouths moved. It was so what? weird. I, I just... This is the saddest story of a childhood I've ever heard in my it life. It puts me <laughs> off of it, man. I was, a Scooby-Doo, I was a Scooby-Doo kid. Like, I watched Scooby-Doo all the time. Which might have... Also, because I've talked about, you know, how Jaws 2 got me into slashers and aquatic horror. Scooby-Doo might have actually gotten me, in, me into, like, the slasher aspect because it was a whodunit. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Anyway. So, Brennan, we'll bring you back for a Scooby-Doo movie. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, I've alluded to it earlier. Trace threatens me with it all the time. No. I, Which I I'm open to. I actually think it'd be fun. I think it's going to be my... Move your fat! I think, I think I'm switching out the one I have. All right, I'm going to bleep that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so yeah, just a heads up. We're doing Scooby-Doo on Zombie Island. Okay, so Brenna, do you have an answer to the game since Trace has decided he's just <laughs> I don't, not No, playing? I'm not doing that, yeah. I have kind of a weird answer, and it's a little bit esoteric, but my little guy is really into these children's books by this illustrator, Brendan Wetzel, Wenzel, and he draws these, it, he has a very specific art style that's i'm not going to try to describe on the podcast but it would lend itself very well to stop motion it has that kind of ethereal a little bit uncanny and he writes these books that i would love to see someone try to take to a like a feature-length film he has this one book that i love called life and it's actually the book is describing depression to children in a picture book narrative but like really beautifully like the idea is that everything goes on. Like, you will get through it. It's that kind of messaging, but just in a really beautiful way. And I just think he's got, if anybody listening either has kids or needs to buy gifts for kids, Brendan Wetzel's books are amazing. And I think they would lend themselves to um, stop motion animation really well. He's got this one called They All Saw a Cat. And it's like every animal's view of this one cat. So like you see it through a fly's eyes with like the multiple facets and you see it through a dog's eyes. So it's only in black and white. And like, it, mm. I don't know how to describe it, except that it would look really good in stop motion. Nice. It's not a helpful answer to your question. It's incredibly esoteric, and like four people in your listening <laughs> audience know what the hell I'm talking about. Maybe we'll get a few moms that come into the <laughs> podcast who are looking up Paranorman <laughs> on podcast episodes. It's true. Hey, moms. I mean, it's all about the double dip. That's why I brought the two of you together, so that we could bring people from one into the other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in case you were wondering, because Trace literally never asks, my pick was a stop motion <laughs> adaptation. I always I was get to be the game master, but I never play. Well, no, because the, the one time I asked you for your answer, you were like, oh, I didn't prepare one because you never asked. And I was like, I guess I won't ask anymore. That's great. <laughs> 
It's amazing. If at first you don't get the answer you expect, never ask again. That's a great That's a good children's message. message. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just shut up. So my pick was Jason and the Argonauts because it already has oh, a stop motion piece yeah. to it. But I think it'd be interesting to see the whole movie done that way. Ooh. Oh, I like it. See, and oh yeah, that, that, what, what is that yeah that oh, Ray Harry the Harryhausen that's Harryhausen spit yeah. it out there Trace sorry I was trying to think of it uh, yeah no I don't like that again it's it's a weird animation style I don't like it it looks so abnormal to me and it freaks me out no that's fair <laughs> I mean it's not for everybody I remember seeing like those things as a kid you know from like I guess eighties movies that had that kind of stop motion look to them like uh, in the live yeah. action movies. Oh my god, like the Weird Al movie has that whole uh, stop motion component. (laughs) But I think it's uncanny when it's introduced in the context of live action as opposed to just the whole movie being... You're right. I can find it quite immersive. Like, I found this film pretty immersive. No, I didn't. didn't, I liked... And maybe it was the 3D printer technology. I don't know. But I I wasn't bothered really by this. But Mm. also because... (laughs) You weren't bothered. I know. Um, But anyway, so yeah, that's that's the end of my statement. Yeah. I just thought of one tiny piece of horror cred that I do have to share with your audience. Go ahead. Okay. okay, so are you familiar with the TV show Are You Afraid of the Dark? Yes, I am. Okay, so I auditioned for that show four <gasps> times. Oh, because it was Canada! <laughs> it was Canadian. It was made in Montreal. <laughs> I'm telling you, Trace. I auditioned for it four times. And I, you know, they never tell you why you didn't get the part, so I don't know for sure. But I do know that I made it to the scream take every time. <laughs> And I never made it past the scream take. I don't think my screams are very convincing. But I do know that my poor dad, who used to drive me to my auditions, the first time we did the Are You Afraid of the Dark audition, did it. And they're like, okay, that was great. Thanks for that. We're going to take you uh, into another room now. We got we need to get you to scream a few times. Okay, so I go into the room and scream like several times. And then uh, I come out of the audition room and my dad is just sitting in the waiting room white as a sheet. Just like, <laughs> white. <laughs> All he has heard is his teenage daughter screaming blue bloody murder in the other room. So yeah, no, I never made it past the scream takes. I'm guessing it was my scream that did it, but you know. Anyway, that's my other little horror claim to fame. Four auditions. That's worth it. I love that a part of the audition was (laughs) a separate scream take. That is awesome. Well, I think what you're doing with child actors, you have to be really thorough. (laughs) You do. Fair. You do. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this up. Yeah, well, so, okay, um, before we announce what we're covering next week, Brenna, do you want to plug anything in addition to y'all's podcast? Yeah, yes, I Brenna, think plug I'm the podcast, supposed to sake. plug <laughs> Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, our young adult podcast and its filmic adaptations, which releases an episode every Tuesday, starting again in August with season two, so please check it out. Uh, and if you want to find me on Twitter to yell at me about my thoughts about mom internet, or to ask me questions about being an unsuccessful voice actor in the early 2000s. Or to recommend horror movies for you to go watch. Yeah, which I will ignore. Uh, you can find me at Brenna C. Gray, and it's Gray with an A. <laughs> Good. And then uh, speaking of Twitter, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Traced Thurman. And I am at B Stole My Remote. That's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweets. You can also email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com or check out our Facebook page. Also, please go to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We do like five stars. We don't like anything less than that. But, you know... You do you. Uh, Feel free to leave a five star specifically about my contribution to this podcast. Yes. If you yes. name drop Brenna uh, and your Apple username <laughs> is like easy to tell who you are, like it's your name, <laughs> then I don't know. We'll send you an email and say, hey, you're cool. 
Uh, if you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films, like, I think our most recent one at this point is Crawl, which yes. is an amazing alligator movie. And you also get a newsletter at the beginning of every month letting you know what movies we're covering for that month, so you can get ahead of the game and make fun of everyone else who doesn't know. Joe, mm-hmm. what are we covering next week? Well, since you asked, we're kicking off August by traveling back to what appears to be our absolutely favorite year on the podcast, which is 1999. And we're going to be checking out... (laughs) Here we go. Brenda, this is not a film for you. No, it's not! (laughs) Takashi Miike's Audition. (sighs) But I took a cue from y'all's podcast. I read the book on my way to Colorado this weekend. So I have read the book and I am now ready to watch the movie. Yes, and I'm excited to hear about the differences in that adaptation. Oh, hey, adaptations. Yeah, if you haven't... I was going to say, this is a big old tie-in. Yeah, like, you could really stand to hear more about adaptations by listening to the other <laughs> podcast, which is... Oh, my God. Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star. <laughs> Holy fuck, you guys. I'm going to stab you in the face. <laughs> Well, and and listeners, if for some reason you do want to read Audition, it's only 190 pages. It is the quickest read <laughs> I've ever had in my yeah. life. And, but the movie is but almost two alert, hours long. The dog dies. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, sorry. Uh, no, trigger warning. I've seen the movie two or three times. I don't remember a dog dying. But in the book, there is a full two pages devoted to a dog's death. Like torture and death. So trigger warning for that again if you're out there i don't remember if the dog dies in the movie but you so you might want to go to does the dog which is a legit website that will tell you if a dog dies in a movie that's yeah. my favorite website <laughs> it's the darkest <laughs> it's very useful information it is uh so uh yeah uh but on that note i think we can cross out paranorman yes and cross out horror queers and thanks again brenna This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.